quiet does not mean listless or sitting in the armchair, if you will. It moves with energy. In fact, I would argue more energy because it's not absorbed with all of these counterfeit issues that we're always churning ourselves up with. Our guest today brings who he is, a professor of management at Palm Beach Atlantic University, former business leader in aerospace and the defense sector, drawing from his expertise and gut-level honesty, Lane Cohey brings a synthesis of different fields in a systematic way that really lends itself to clarity. Lane has written a book addressing what has become a chronic condition in our culture, the disquieted soul. My name is Nathan Foster, and welcome to the Renovare Podcast. Lane, how are you? I'm well, Nathan. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. good. Thank you. We get to talk about uh, what for many today I think would be a, a relevant topic. This um, book that you put out, The Disquieted Soul, Paths of Discovery and Deliverance. Could you tell us a little bit about the book and how it came to be? Sure. Um, well, it's, it's very much um, a book written around my personal experience. But when I wrote it, I, I really tried to frame it in a way that hopefully was relevant for many people. So when people ask me, you know, what's the book about? I usually say, you know, it's about the overs, people who are over worrying, overthinking, over analyzing, over performing, over perfecting, over protecting. And then invariably, someone will say, oh, well, that sounds like me. And I'll say, well, that's that's kind of the point, because I think we all live with it to some degree, this disquiet. This, um, I'll call it um, just just maybe some degree of low grade or maybe high grade turbulence mm-hmm. in your soul uh, in our souls um, areas where you know we struggle with unease. It's not necessarily classic anxiety. You know, it could be involved that, uh, but just areas where there's there's the soul is is if you will agitated, um, and we learn to live with that. Even as believers, um, we we learn to just accept that that's quote unquote the way it is. Uh, and um, I kind of came to a point of my faith. Uh, I won't call it a crisis of faith, but it was certainly a serious point in my faith in which I realized that's just not, you know, I've just been accepting this for too long. And so God kind of led me through this journey of of some degree of awareness. Um, and and uh, and led me to write the book. G- give me a picture of of what does it look like for a low grade agitated soul? It's someone <laughs> swimming in the overs. <laughs> well, I'll just speak from experience. For example, wake up in the morning, and the very first thing that you're thinking about is ten things that need to be done, and there may be conflict involved in. In those things, there, there often is. Maybe it's a debate that you're having with somebody else, or maybe a hypothetical conversation that's happening with someone, um, good, bad, or otherwise. Um, it's usually busy. Uh, it's usually, I'll use the word again, agitated. Uh, not necessarily always in an angry sense, but just you, you just feel rushed. Your your adrenaline already gets going. And I'm a morning person, but you, so you go, you know, slam six cups of coffee and. 
and the adrenaline gets going higher and, you know, pretty soon, <laughs> and pretty soon you're, you know, and, and just the, uh, the sense of um, tension. And a lot of that portrays itself in areas where maybe you overshoot or you just overthink things or you over worry things or you try to over control things. Um, you know, I'm a project manager by trade and in academia. And so you're always thinking ahead, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but when you're overdoing it, trying to control for every circumstance, it, it just becomes wearisome. And it's totally contrary to the idea of peace and joy and rest that the Bible speaks of. What I do like to emphasize is that many of these areas of disquiet really never come to pass. They're based in imaginary, I'll call them threats, you know, things that we're concerned about. We've got plenty of those things right now as we speak. Um, economic threats, personal safety, health, um, relational, but I would say more than anything, emotional. You know, people not approving of us, people of us, people um, maybe looking at us and, and finding faults in us, and particularly for those of us who are inclined towards perfectionism, you know, where we have to try to keep everything looking exactly right. That's just, it's just very wearisome to try to protect yourself against every one of the scenarios that might happen. And most of them never come to pass. <laughs> they just don't come to pass. But we plan for them anyway, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And, and in one sense, you you just described American culture to a yep. to a T. Um, and and I, I wanna I wanna contrast that with a, a quieted soul. But but maybe first, this picture of the imaginary threats or it not coming to pass. What do you mean by that? When I speak on this, I tell this story, and it's a strange story. For 30 years, I was in another industry before I went to academia, and I did find good positions everywhere I went, always very solid, really nothing to quote-unquote be afraid of. But I remember when I moved to Florida, I would make this drive to my employer at the time, and every single day I would drive by this rescue mission or, or, or shelter, many of them were homeless, who were standing out looking, hoping for some day labor work in Florida. Maybe someone would go and help with some agriculture, you know, cut grass or, you know, or trim trees or whatever it might be. And so they would stand up and, and I had, you know, here I am going along with no reason whatsoever. And I have this fear that's going to be you Lane. you know, you're going to lose your house. You're going to lose everything. You're going to, you're going to be one of those guys. You're not going to be able to take care of your family. And I'm sitting there and, and I tell this story. And when I do most every time I can see 50, 60 people in the audience and they all, for some reason, resonate, not with that exact story, but with the fear. And I say, how crazy is this? There was no basis for this irrational fear that I had that all of these things were going to get lost. And I was going to be one of these people um, struggling in this way, but it points to, you know, in this case, safety needs, security, uh, perhaps things that go back to uh, maybe things that I struggle with even as a young boy, and how that projects itself into areas that candidly are irrational. But when I ask the question, how many of you have that kind of story 
there almost everybody says they do. It's a different story, but it's a similar one. And it never came to pass. (laughs) (laughs) Family did great. Kids went on. It was just, it was silly. What I find interesting in that is 50% of the people kind of shook their head that you're, you're telling, you know, other stories in that details different and such. What are some of the other imaginary threats that, that dominate people's lives? Oh, well, I think, you know, that, that was kind of a storyline threat, but um, let's just talk about approval threats. I mean, you know, let's talk about how many times we imagine that somebody is dissatisfied with what we're doing or they quote unquote, don't like us or their parents or authority figures or, you know, people that we, we look up to or bosses or whatever, and they might say something and, and we choose to let that marinate pretty soon. We've created this entire narrative, which, and then you go back at some point perhaps and have an opportunity to visit with them. And it's like, oh no, that's not what I meant at all. But we've already played out an entire scenario of I said this and they said that, and I said that. And I used to joke around that, you know, you sit in the shower and argue with somebody, you know, for 15 minutes. Um, and pretty soon you've met this person, you've had this entire discussion that you never had. And, and you probably never would have had it. Um, it. Maybe you would have, but but a lot of it is imaginary. And, and I don't want to say all disquiet comes from imaginary threats because there are very real threats that are out there. But I do want to say that a lot of it is letting our minds just go wherever and not really recognizing the importance of what I get to in the, in the deliverance phase, which is our ruminations, where our minds naturally go. What's interesting me, to me about it is that oftentimes these threats have a, a glimmer of truth. Um, they do. But then meditating on the fear meditating on the lack worst case scenario right and many times they they have a root in in what i call in the book our identity needs things that god really did make us he did make us with a desire and a need to be secure he did make us with a desire and a need to be valued um you know he he did make us with a desire and need for belonging and for love and and those threats many times uh, real or imagined go right after um, those identity needs and not to make too much out of it. But if we do go back and play out some areas in our childhood, perhaps where certain things scared us, or maybe we felt like we were vulnerable in a certain area. It's not uncommon in my experience to find that those are some of the boogeymen that are still haunting us decades later. Right. There's a story in there. <laughs> there is. I like that you bring up some of these identity needs that we'll be acting out from and and shift. There's a shift in there that these are not bad needs. Not at all. These are good needs. We just try to meet them in distorted and destructive ways, I guess. Right. <laughs> and and that is one thing that I talk about in the third chapter, which when I deal with what I call cruel masters, and a lot of people talk about them in different ways, but when we can't control all of our circumstances, many times we find ourselves running to meet those identity needs. You know, as C.S. Lewis says, in the wrong places and the wrong amounts. The idea that we try to find ultimate pleasures in these things that God has given us good pleasure in for the most part, 
but we try to make them ultimate and we try to escape some of the, these fears that we struggle with. And in my experience, those things enslave us all the more. They do what they can do. They take yes. us to the natural end. Lane, paint for us a picture um, on the other side. What does a quieted soul look like? The picture that I portray is one that um, we Floridians will appreciate, but I think everybody can get this. Um, if you drive across um, our intercoastal waterway from our barrier islands over to our mainland, you get an opportunity to drive across what is oftentimes a very placid, strong, but, but placid and, and quieted and stilled rivers. And many, 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 many days I would drive over those and it was beauty, the sun shining off of it, tranquil, calm. Contrast that with any of our Florida summer storms or hurricanes or whatever and what it looks like. And, and that's the contrast that I have in extremes between quiet and disquiet. Quiet does not mean listless or sitting in the armchair, if you will. It moves with force, it moves with direction, it moves with energy. In fact, I would argue more energy because it's not absorbed with all of these counterfeit issues, right, that we're always churning ourselves up with. But it moves with a direction that is guided, I would say, with the rest and the peace of Christ. And, and, it's, and it's interesting because I bring this up uh, in, another, in one of the chapters when I deal with the driven, because to your point earlier about the culture, our culture almost invites us to dislike rest. You know, rest, it feels weak. I'll sleep when I'm dead, you know, kind of thing. Why would you want to have peace and rest? That sounds pretty like for the old folks home, but we'll do that in a few decades, but we're not there right now. And, and it's such a contrary view to what true biblical rest is because our souls are able to move in that direction. It's amazing, I've found, the ability that we have to be, uh, for lack of a better term, just much more productive people. I, I mean, you don't do it for the sake of productivity, but God certainly gives you the benefit of um, just really not having to deal with all of those distractions of life and all those areas that just spin you up if that makes sense. Oh, it totally does. Do you find that sometimes these this dis-ease is, is running and we're not really aware of it until the lack of? Yeah, and I think there's two ways to look at it. So first of all, we have the natural disquiet of just the society that we live in. And in our time, when we're taping this right now, um, we're seeing some of that noise you know, intentionally tamped down. And so we're kind of dealing with what does that look like? Because we're so used to the, to the rush and some of that has been pushed away intentionally. But then you've got this, this internal um, noise that's going on that I alluded to earlier that, that candidly, even as sincere, believing Christians, we just get used to. And it is an artifact of culture, and it is an artifact of ourselves. 
And it is an artifact of the fact that in many cases, I would say we don't necessarily invest in the spiritual practices and disciplines that are necessary to do battle with that disquiet. We just accept it. That's a great phrase, a cultural or an artifact of culture. And, and I think we could take it even further that it's a value and that these kind of a, a disquieted life is, is in a sense buying into values of productivity and esteem and identity. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. When we talk to people under normal circumstances and we say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. It's a value statement. It's like I'm meaningful if I'm busy um, to some degree, you know, I, I don't know if I said I wasn't busy, then you would look at me and you'd say, well, what's your problem? You know, uh, you're, you, you must be slacking off or, you know, it is a cultural indicator of value. Important people are busy people. Right. So we all know this disquieted, uh, so what does it look like uh, to be quieted, to be at peace? <laughs> I, I think the first thing that we need to, to understand and perhaps unpack just a little bit more is how deeply rooted not only in the identity needs, but also in some really core areas of sin that really need to be contended with. I, I argue that the flower bed, if you will, of disquiet from our sense of self is rooted in pride and shame. Um, that doesn't mean that every area that happens in our life ultimately is because of our pride and shame, but it, it, it does mean that when we approach things, um, many, many times we approach them from a perspective of, of pride that is hubris or shame. And what do I mean by that? Pride is always comparing and congratulating itself. And shame is always condemning itself. Both are wrong views of ourselves in Christ, in Christ. Um, and if we don't understand that, I believe we're going to have a really, really hard time dealing with the first issue of going through the path of, of deliverance, and that is really uh, getting a better handle of our identity in Christ. And so I suggest that there's three things we have to do. One, our identity. Two, deal with God's identity, i.e. how we understand him. And three, arrive at a position of trust, uh, which may involve some pain. And the reason that I don't just rush to trust, which is what we often do, is because I think there's a lot of spade work that needs to be done before we do, do that. So our identity, who does God say I am, and ultimately dealing with these demons of pride and shame at a very core level is the first step. And we could talk more about that if you like. The, the second step is dealing with what I call the God of the circumstances. That is recognizing that we need to remember who God is and we need to remember instances in the scriptures, in our lives, in other circumstances that we've seen him work in ways that are contrary 
to the way in which we think things ought to be, um, but ultimately for our good, which is really hard for a disquieted soul. To, you can say it, we can, we can say it all day long, but it's really hard for us to believe. And then the last thing, as I indicated, arriving at a heart of trust. And in the book, I deal with the fact that that's probably going to involve pain. And, be, and our willingness to be vulnerable and open to experiencing pain, not in a masochistic sense, but in a very real sense. Because Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Instead of trying to control away the trouble all the time, but really opening ourselves up to the reality that this is part of our fallen world that we live in. It's part of how God is redeeming things. And he will use it for our good, even many times when we don't think that he will. But that's a hard trust issue. That's a great line. Control away the trouble. Here comes right. trouble. So then the default to, um, you know, and, it, and that almost becomes a pride issue that somehow if I just worked hard enough, I could, you know, fix these things that really I don't have control over. Exactly. And, and I think that's why pride uh, and shame also are so at the core of this is because we live in a society, we believe we have such a high internal locus of control. So what does that mean? It just basically means in Western society, we believe if there's a problem, we can fix it. Or if we can't fix it, we'll, we know someone who can. And because of that, we feel like we can control away you know, anything that might bring pain into our lives, or we believe we should. And that's our default. And that's a default that leads in part to a lot of disquiet. And in a sense, this goes back to many of the places that uh, sin goes to of trying to be God. Exactly. I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a common picture to think of trusting God as involving pain. And I'm, and I'm really right. glad you're pointing that out. What does that look like? What is the pain that potentially comes from trusting God? First of all, recognizing that when we journey into life, there will be painful circumstances that will come. Now, we're not called to be foolish. God does encourage us, I believe, to apply wisdom to any circumstance. It's not like, again, not like we're masochistic. But um, we may have to enter into a situation which causes us emotional vulnerability and may cause us emotional pain. I kind of come back to perfectionism, for instance. We perfectionists who are always trying to control our, our world begin to let down our guard, as it were, and be authentic that's going to be at the expense of probably some criticism. I mean, that's what we're protecting ourselves against. Um, that may be at the expense of someone not thinking of us the way we want them to, which is painful. That may be an important person, which is painful. Um, it may be that um, we realize that we're going to be entering into challenging relationships that are painful. And if our default is, to run away from those or to try to control them away, then we, we, we may be missing out on what I believe is perhaps one of the most integral ways in which we can truly identify with Christ 
and this is a point that I try to make in, in the book, is when Christ came into the world, he came into the world, you know, in, in I'll call it in pain, certainly knew and experienced every form of pain and no doubt died a death of pain. And it wasn't a nonstop pain journey, but we see pain as very much a real part of Christ's experience, his human experience. When we try to run away from that, um, whether it be relationships that we're struggling with or people who let us down or circumstances that we're trying desperately to avoid, in a sense, we're saying we don't really want to identify with Christ in that way. And we're not allowing him to show us that he will not only go in front of us, but he will actually be with us and abide with us in wearing our wounds, even when the wounds are, are painful. I think we just miss out on so much of what Jesus showed us in the human experience. And again, I'm not trying to encourage people to go out, you know, go out and hurt yourself. Or, I mean, that, that's not the point. The point is when we know that there are difficult circumstances that we may go through, be they financial, be they personal, be they emotional, be they physical, that our default is not necessarily avoid them at all costs. I like this. It, what I think I'm hearing is that rather than managing the pain, the vulnerability, the limitations, our wounds, and kind of scurrying around to try and somehow control that, bringing these with a sort of honesty, a, a, a leaning in, a, a collapsing into God of sorts. Absolutely. I mean, I will never forget the, the day that I realized I could never control away all the problems that I had. <laughs> and, and believe it or not, I was in my, I think I was in my 30s, maybe, or my early 40s. So I may be a slow learner, but I, I was professionally at a point where I no longer had quote unquote control over how certain things occurred. I could encourage the team. I could encourage people. Um, I could, you know, try to make the wisest choices possible. But at the end of the day, there were things that were going to happen, which I knew, you know, I just simply couldn't control. And I remember this verse, you know, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of cheer because I've overcome the world. And I'm sitting here thinking, Jesus told us we're going to have these issues. It isn't like, you know, he, if we want to know if there's a snake oil, oil salesman, you know, that's the person who's going to tell us there won't be pain, right? That there aren't going to be problems, that there are going to, you know, that we can live a pain-free life. Jesus did the opposite. So why should we expect not to take him at his word. And to some degree, to your point, then we can begin to let the guard down a little bit. You know, we don't have to naturally flinch or reflex because God is there. And that's another thing, if, if you'll permit me, I've been thinking a little bit about this um, circumstance that we're in right now, been thinking about that internal locus of control. Why is it that this has still been a very disquieting period for me? I'd like like to stand up and say, well, you know, I wrote this book and this hasn't been a struggle, but it has. And I realized God was kind of showing me, Lane, you're on a fast. I'm asking you to fast, but not ways that you normally fast, not the typical dietary fast, but fasting from your locus of control. That kind of changed my view of things. 
because I realized, you know, there's going to be periods like any fast where there's discomfort. The solution is not to run to the coping mechanisms or even to false piety, but simply deliberately draw near to the Lord. And then I, to, to close this thought, I was reading Philippians 4, reasoning through it, you know, and everybody knows the passage, you know, be anxious about anything. That's where usually where we start. But I stepped back and I looked at the sentence immediately before it, and it was, the Lord is near. It's kind of like God wanted me to see that in these times that we're in, when I might go 12 hours without talking to another person, it's like, the Lord is near. That was kind of an interesting awareness that God brought me to that um, constantly wants us to reflect on his nearness in good times and bad, including just uncomfortable times like the ones that we're in. You often hear, be anxious for nothing, but that beginning. Yes. Like if yeah. you miss that part, then it it's just kind of ethereal, but the right. Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. I'm curious as to how you maintain this. What are the practices that keep you in this space is, I think I just want to call it an abundant life of sort, living the life that, that Jesus has for you. How do you stay in that and not get sucked back into control and, and you know, the, the, the noise, the clutter in your head? Sure. Well, the short answer is, is that I'm constantly in and out. Um, I believe that God has shown me a lot more um, over the last couple of years, awareness of it and provide and understanding a spiritual pathway is a great start. Um, but it's a constant, you know, um, two steps forward, one back, or vice versa. Um, but the short answer is in the book, I actually talk about some spiritual circuit training. And I can't help myself because I have a couple of engineering degrees that I had to write a diagram. And I put this, this term and it goes along with or these, these phrases, stop and think, what am I dwelling on? That's, that's the first thing, you know, day in and day out, um, minute to minute, what am I dwelling on? You know, what am I chewing on? What, what, am I, what am I meditating on? Ask whose voice am I hearing? And that's actually an important element, you know, what, who does God say that I am and what is God saying about my circumstances? Adjust to God's truth about me and circumstances because that may be radically different than what I think it is. And then reframe reality. And in, in the book, I talk about the importance of how many times we see things in a certain way, almost like night you know, we see things through one lens and God is asking us to look through spiritual night vision goggles and reframing reality is an important spiritual discipline, remembering that he knows what he's doing and then trusting that there's purpose and that he's with me, which sounds like a lot, but then I put this little stop and think, ask, adjust, reframe, remember, trust, and it almost is a little jingle. It's the best I can do. I'm sorry. 
But, um, but it kind of helps me as I'm just thinking through the day, most importantly, to stop and to ask, what am I dwelling on? Because so many times our ruminations just carry us away into places that we shouldn't be. But equally importantly, and I talk about this in an appendix, I'll say I emphasize the discipline of, of meditation, biblical meditation, prayer, certainly, study, certainly. But I focused on meditation because it's such a lost discipline. You know, there's automatically the association of Eastern meditation and so forth. And we've so much lost the richness of meditation. It's kind of what I call cleansing the spiritual palate. It's getting that renewal and that recharging and, and just that closeness and that intimacy with God that does allow you to go through the circuit training. And I've had days in which it's been beautiful and I've had plenty of days where I can't get off the ground. And that's just, I think that's part of our, our common experience. Um, you know, dark nights of the soul areas where we just, we have a hard time getting past the clutter. And then Nathan, I'll just say this, and you know, to your point, the best I can do is just say, God, I'm just stuck. <laughs> I, I know what the quote unquote recipe, if you want to put it that way. And I know that's not how we think about it, but you know what I mean? I can't get in sync spiritually. And I just need to be very honest with you that I can't. And I need you to pull me out of this hole because I'm, and I think that's okay too. In fact, I think that's what the Lord is near is, has a lot to do with it. What I'm hearing from Elaine is an intentionality, taking time to pause rather than just going on autopilot. Right. Taking that pause. And, and also I'm hearing a courage to be honest about where things are at and then a movement towards submission kind of a desperation of acknowledging of need, which then speaks to all that control, which seems to be, you know, rooted at some level in the disease. But it just a, it almost just sounds like a, a practice of let's pause and, and run through some honest, heartfelt questions. Right. And, and, you know, I will say for me, and we didn't talk too much about shame, but the reason why I think the shame aspect is so important is I think when it comes to honesty, many of us are fearful of that. I certainly am because of latent shame. You know, we, we carry a lot of that belief that other people are condemning us. And if they're not, we certainly are condemning ourselves. We listen to the accused voice. And it's really hard for us to open up, to, to be honest about where we are, even with God when we're living lives of shame. And that's why I think it's so important that we really deal with that two-headed beast of shame and pride. Mm -hmm. Lane, it's very helpful. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Nathan. Well, there you have it. Again, Lane's book is titled, The Disquieted Soul, Paths of Discovery and Deliverance. As always, thanks for listening and have a good week.